0: This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We begin with the lava fire that's burning in Siskiyou County in far northern California. And joining us with the latest is Scott Rod of our partner station, Cap Radio, who's on the scene. Scott, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me on. So what's the latest there? So the lava fire has grown overnight to just under 20,000 acres. And there was some activity between the town of Weed and also Shastina, overnight. There's some fire activity picking up. Cal Fire says that it was fairly challenging for one of their contingency line, lines near Highway 97. However, they were able to to hold it back for the most part overnight.
0: And do we know if any homes have been lost or have there been fatalities or injuries?
1: Cal Fire says there are no known structures that have been burned at this time. It's just been lots of vegetation. They are going to be sending out Damage teams in the coming days. And so they'll be surveying what damage may have happened. But as of right now, there aren't any homes or structures that have been known to burn.
0: And of course, we've all heard about the heat wave affecting so much of Northern California and and the rest of the far north. What are conditions like there for firefighters trying to fight this blaze?
1: Well, it is very hot up here. There is still a heat advisory that is remaining in effect until Saturday night. And we're looking at temperatures ranging from the low 90s to possibly pushing up to over 100 degrees. And so the conditions certainly for the fires, those are you know favorable in terms of the fires potentially spreading, unfortunately. And as far as for firefighters go, uh, that's extremely challenging conditions to be fighting these blazes in. So fortunately, Cal Fire says they seem to be optimistic in terms of the progress they've been making. There's hopes that the, the wind stays low. You know, Obviously, that'll be a wild card with any fire, but the heat remains a challenge for sure. And just
0: finally, Scott, you've been doing this really extraordinary investigative work into how Governor Newsom has overstated the scope of California's fire mitigation work and controlled burns. Do any of those issues intersect with what we're seeing now with these blazes in Northern California?
1: It actually does. Um, one of the priority projects that was part of Newsom's 35 big projects is up here at Lake Shastina. It's a fuel break and our reporting showed that a number of the projects Newsom had overstated the work that had been done. On this fuel break, it's actually one that all of the work had been completed. It's a, uh, a couple hundred acres worth of a fuel break along Highway 97 and some back roads. Now the fire had crossed this fuel break, so the effectiveness of it to hold back the fire. It wasn't very successful. However, the purpose of the break was also to provide a safe uh, evacuation route for some of these communities that are tucked away near Lake Shastina. We're still looking into whether or not it was effective, if it was able to sort of provide a safe route as the fire was coming through the area. So more to come on that.
0: All right. That is Scott Rod of Cab Radio. Scott, thanks so much. Thank you. 17 people were injured after Los Angeles police attempted to safely detonate explosive devices that were seized along with illegal fireworks from a South L.A. home yesterday. Police discovered more than 5,000 pounds of fireworks at the home and also found a batch of improvised explosives. After removing the fireworks to a safe location, the LAPD bomb squad placed about 10 pounds of the explosives in their specialized vehicle for detonation. That's when the explosion Occurred. Here's LAPD Chief Michael Moore speaking to reporters late last night.
2: Protocols were uh,
1: were, were followed and pursued, but something happened in that containment vehicle that should not have happened, and we don't know why. But we intend to find out why.
0: Of the 17 people who were injured, nine were LAPD officers and one was with ATF. Seven civilians were also injured. The injuries were all described as moderate to minor in nature. Several homes were also damaged in the neighborhood as a result of the explosion. This all comes as both the city and county of Los Angeles have launched initiatives to curb the use of illegal fireworks before and during the 4th of July weekend. That includes the city's first fireworks buyback program Program, which was held yesterday. Similar to gun buyback programs that are held by law enforcement agencies, people can anonymously turn in fireworks for tickets and gifts.
1: Hi, I'm Sasha Coca host of The California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California.
0: Crimes targeting members of California's Asian communities increased by more than 100 percent in 2020, according to the California Attorney General's office. Here's Attorney General Rob Bonta. For many the past year, wasn't just worrying about your health, your job, seeing your friends and family. It was also about wondering whether you or someone you love would be attacked simply because of the way you look. The Attorney General's Office, along with advocacy groups and academics, say the attacks against Asian Americans took place while some public figures, like former President Trump, connected the Asian community to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hate crimes targeting Black Californians almost doubled in 2020, comprising more than 34% of all reported incidents. The report also noted that despite a significant increase in these attacks, many of these incidents are still going underreported. It's been a bloody year in California, with such cities as Oakland, Fresno, San Bernardino, and San Diego all seeing increases in homicides and other violent crimes. L.A. has seen a 50% spike in shootings in the first six months of this year compared to last year, with more than 160 murders committed. One group that's trying to stop the violence from getting worse is the Urban Peace Institute. It trains people in the community to de-escalate tensions. The California report talked to the Institute's director, Fernando Rejon, who's concerned about the weeks
2: ahead. What we're hoping for this summer is to implement strategies to help address um, potential violence during the summer because we know traditionally in the summer months, people are out, people have been cooped up for the last year because of the pandemic. They anticipate a lot of people, you know, being out and especially when it's hot, you know, there's no air conditioning in the house. People want to be outside. People want to be in the parks, out in the streets. And then, you know, there's always potential for conflict. So given that's the context, what are you going to be doing in the coming weeks? We're putting together a peace ambassador program. They are um, not necessarily community intervention workers. But they are close to ground zero. And what they can do is they can open up communication when two communities are in conflict or having disagreements or even at, at full scale war. Is that ambassadors are people who come from the neighborhoods who can create lines of communication and help mediate conflict uh, before it arises or to prevent retaliatory violence.
0: So, what does that look like? I mean, what's an example of that? Does one of these ambassadors just approach a group of people in a park or do they knock on a door and they've heard about someone might want to cause trouble there? Uh, what happens?
2: I mean, ambassadors are embedded in their communities, so, so they know what's going on. People that are ambassadors or gang intervention workers uh, have the ability to, to connect with various people because they have the relationships. They have what we call a license to operate. They have the credibility um, in the community to, to engage folks that many times no one else engages other than, you know, maybe law enforcement, you know, potentially trying to arrest them.
0: Can the work ever be dangerous to the ambassadors themselves? Because, you know, they may know a lot, but they don't know everything.
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, intervention workers will say all the time, like, "We we don't have bulletproof vests or guns. All we have is our word and our reputation. But when you have somebody there who has been through the life, many of them former gang members, many of them formerly incarcerated, it's easier to have a conversation and provide alternatives because the credibility is there. But then also, you know, they're not judging you. They're not trying to get you locked up. They're trying to save lives, but also they're trying to provide alternatives to violence because they don't want to see any more deaths in their community.
0: And what do you say to people? And I've heard, you know, and maybe people have gotten in your own face about this, where they say, you know, this is nice, but at the end of the day, it's no substitute for more cops on the street.
2: You say what to that? Gang intervention, street outreach, violence interruption, you know, it's called various things, works. And I use this stat a lot because it, it really says a lot, is that when LAPD alone responds to a gang-related homicide, the chance of retaliation is 24%. When LAPD plus gang intervention in, sep- in their separate lanes respond, the chance of retaliatory homicide drops down to below 1%. Gang intervention workers have proven their effectiveness, their worth, and they should be valued as part of a public safety framework. And that's a different vision. It, it, it's... For some cities that don't have the kind of long-term understanding of of gang intervention and evolution that we've gone through in L.A., that's a very radical concept. But for us in L.A., it's a reality because we can see it. But we just need to really shift the value in, in peacemakers, but also how public safety is practiced.
0: Well, listen, I wish you and your colleagues all the best in the coming months and stay safe. Thank you. Thank
2: you. I appreciate your time.
0: Let's turn to the pandemic. California's COVID-19 test positivity rate has inched up in recent weeks. With more, here's KQED's Laura Clivens. First off, this number is still very low. 1.3% of people getting tested for COVID are positive for the virus in the state. For some context, that rate hit 17% in January during our major winter surge. UC San Francisco epidemiologist George Rutherford says he's not overly concerned about the increase as hospitalizations are not up. But he is slightly worried, in part due to the Delta variant.
1: We're not back to normal yet. We have this variant. We have a substantial number of people in the state who remain unvaccinated, and we need to continue to exercise some caution going forward over this long holiday weekend.
0: California officials say the state's health care system can handle these slight increases in COVID cases. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. And here's an increasingly important question, to mask or not to mask? Earlier this week, we told you that health officials in Los Angeles County recommended that everyone, no matter their COVID-19 vaccination status, wear masks indoors due to concerns about the Delta variant. The World Health Organization has now issued the same guidance, but the CDC and other health agencies here in California haven't followed suit and Dr. Peter Katona, an infectious disease specialist at UCLA School of Public Health, says, unfortunately, that's led to a lot of confusion.
1: People don't know what to do. Should I go and wear a mask or not wear a mask? I'm outdoors, but I'm in a crowd of people. Do I need to wear a mask? It creates a certain amount of confusion. And also there's this reluctance to go backwards. You know, we're going in one direction. We're loosening up everything now, especially in California. Now we're going a step backwards, and people are very hesitant about that as well.
0: The California report asked Dr. Katona if he would wear a mask indoors.
1: I would be fine not wearing one, but at the same time, I want to set an example. and I want to do the right thing in terms of what people's perception is and not just the reality of it. But scientifically, I don't think I need to wear a mask indoors at this point.
0: Since L.A. County's guidance came out, several other health experts have expressed a similar sentiment about wearing masks indoors. Dr. Katona says he believes while there is some confusion, this is all meant to protect people who aren't vaccinated yet. Starting today, Californians with outstanding student loans have new rights and protections. KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer has more. A law signed last year creates an ombudsman to oversee the student loan industry and help borrowers navigate the new regulations aimed at holding loan companies accountable. Mike Pierce with the Student Borrower Protection Center says this is an important time to implement the law, with the federal pause on student loan payments expiring at the end of September.
1: California now, for the first time, has clear rules of the road in place to protect California student loan borrowers when the student loan industry inevitably screws this up.
0: Experts estimate that 4 million Californians have student loans totaling $147 billion. The law is aimed at keeping predatory lenders at bay with lawsuits from the attorney general, if necessary. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. And that is the California Report for Thursday, July 1st. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food, on the web at theschmidt.org. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org AdaptingCare. And Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. PersonalCapital.com.